Amen and amen. We are in God's Word this morning in Mark chapter 7, picking up in verse 14. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. It was a winter's day, and Piglet was brushing off the snow from his front porch. I'm reading a story from my phone. This is not from Mark 7. And he looked up and he saw his friend, Winnie the Pooh. And he called to him, but Pooh Bear was just going about his business, so focused on what was going on that he didn't even notice. So Piglet said, hello. I can't do the accent, sorry. What are you doing? Hunting, said Pooh. Hunting what? I'm tracking something, said Winnie the Pooh, very mysteriously. Tracking what, said Piglet, coming closer to Pooh. That's just what I asked myself. I asked myself, what? Well, what do you think you'll answer? I shall have to wait until I catch up with it, said Winnie the Pooh. Now look there, he, he pointed to the ground in front of him. What do you see there? Tracks, said Piglet. Paw marks. He gave an exciting squeal of excitement. Oh, Pooh, do you think it's a woozle? It may be, said Pooh. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. You never can tell with paw marks. With these few words, he went on tracking and Piglet, after watching Pooh for a minute or two, ran after him and then Winnie the Pooh had come to a sudden stop was bending over the tracks in a puzzled sort of way. What's the matter? asked Piglet. It's a very funny thing, said Bear. But there seem to be two animals now. This, whatever it was, has been joined by another, whatever it is. And the two of them are now proceeding in company. Piglet, would you mind coming with me in case these two turn out to be hostile animals? Piglet scratched his ear in a nice sort of way and said, He had nothing to do until Friday and would be delighted to come in case it really was a whistle. To which Pooh responded and said, you mean in case it really is two whistles. Nonetheless, Piglet said, I have nothing to do until Friday. So they went together. Pooh and Piglet, befuddled, confused in this endless circle of hunting for what they had no idea where Piglet was hopeful it was a whatever a whistle is or might be. Never able to accurately analyze the situation at hand. And if you know anything about the story, in and of themselves, hopelessly wondering in that endless circle never to find a sufficient, satisfying solution because from the outset, the diagnosis was faulty. Ever been there? We know this world is filled of situations where we're forced to make decisions, try to make the best of things with less than ideal information. We have to take situations of life, collect data, hopefully track down the best evidence available, then make our best concerted effort of a decision, 
hoping that it leads to a sufficient remedy or end result. Sometimes we say, often we say, I, I've been guilty of this. Looking back on things, we say, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. This is a safe place, guys. I need to speak some truth into that. That's not true. Not even hindsight is completely twenty twenty. It's just a, a further iteration where we have some added information, but you still don't have the full scope or the full clarity. But what we do know is this. That if there is ever any hope of getting to the real problem of something, if there's ever any real hope of getting to a substantial, sufficient, enduring, effective, beneficial solution, it begins by first accurately diagnosing the situation, by first accurately identifying the real problem. In today's passage of Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, Jesus makes it known to these religious leaders that they'd come under this illusion. They had made some false diagnoses and based on this illusion they'd come under, the result was generations upon generations that had been led astray with wasted attempts providing remedy for themselves in the form of ritualistic religion, focusing on the external environment rather than their inward selves. So it says in verse 14, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you. Very similar to Deuteronomy 6, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Listen up, I've been sharing some truth don't miss it now because I know you've missed a lot up to this point. And I know we're five minutes into the sermon. Listen up. So he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is a result of the immediately preceding verse in verse 13. The religious leadership had come to a point where they misplaced priority. They had given a paramount priority to tradition in historically held rituals rather than the very word of God. And as a result... Though Isaiah says the word of God should never return void, there is one thing that causes the word of God to return void, and that is when tradition and historically held rituals take the place of God's word. So he says, come in, all of you. I'm going to say it to you again. Hear me. Please understand what you have handed down to these different generations from your corrupt leadership has been a bill of goods that has ultimately misdiagnosed the problem. And then he puts out there in verse 15 the truth of the situation. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Remember verses 1 to 13, what happened, these religious leaders were trying to pull up some dirt on Jesus and his followers, and they realized that some of these people who profess to follow Jesus chose not to follow all the guidelines and regulations of washing their hands before they ate a meal. And Jesus says, come a little closer. I think you're missing the point. Hear it this time. Understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are the very things that cause impurity and sin and them being defiled. And apparently, at least according to my English translation, this must be 
such a profound truth that Jesus skips from verse 15 to verse 17. Anybody notice that? Look at your translations. Does anybody see that? Raise your hand. Let me know you're with me. Come on. Okay, there's two of you. Okay. What's going on here? Well, as you remember, the original manuscripts were not written with chapter divisions and verses. It was written in what's known as continuous script. All lowercase Greek words, all continuous together. No breaks, no lines, no divisions. And then about 400, 500 AD, four or 500 years after Jesus ascended back to the uh, right hand of God the Father, some folks came in and, and gave chapter divisions. But then for the next thousand years, the next millennia, all you had to do, you had to be familiar enough with the book to just reference the book and the chapters. It wasn't until around 14, 1500 AD where some monks came a, upon some research and some different manuscripts and gave some better divisions, full chapters, full verses, what we know today. And no offense to those monks in the 1500s, but here's as far as you can take that, okay? We got these divisions and these verses from a bunch of drunk monks in the back of a truck, okay? The verses and chapters are not inspired inerrancy by Almighty God, okay? They are helpful, yes, but they're not the inspired word of God. And so what was determined was that earliest manuscripts did not have a verse 16 in there, but these monks had already given the structure. Research shows us it's nothing significant theologically. The verse that is kept from your English translations here is, if anyone has ears, let them hear. So it's just Jesus again saying, listen up. I've gathered you around. It's critical you understand. Here's the truth. No person is defiled by what might hit them on the outside and go into them. They're only defiled by what comes out of them and their natural existence. If anyone has ears, let them hear. And he continues and he provides this parable, this, this comparative truth. He enters the house with his disciples, as often was the case, right? He would say something publicly, and then his disciples would gather him in private and say, Jesus, we love you, but that doesn't make sense to us all. And I know we're in your inner circle and we should be getting it by now, but you've got to provide us some type of clarification. And that's what happens in verse 17. When Jesus entered the house, left the people, his disciples asked about the parable. Now, this isn't quite as an extensive parable as we've encountered the last few chapters, but nonetheless, it is a truth in which Jesus throws out there and there's comparisons available to, to highlight what he wants to emphasize. So they ask him, about the parable. In verse 18, Jesus provides the most pointed response. He said to them, are you also without understanding? And he legit, according to the connotation of the Greek, he says, are you really that dull? Is your head that dense that you're not understanding what I just spoke to the crowds? And I know often at this point we think, oh, those disciples... So hard-headed, so stubborn, they just never got it, which is 100% true. We can relate with them. But don't let that default um, conception blind us to the, the layers of their struggles. Think about what they had known and been exposed to. They were, among the, they were numbered among the Jewish nation. They were of the nation of Israel. The nation that was the apple of God's eye. All they'd ever known all they'd ever been taught, heard, experienced, practiced themselves likely before Jesus 
was that which was focused on the external. Focused on the outward appearances and conditions and practices. And so at first it seems like, oh, they're just stubborn. They're just hard-headed. But there's a real struggle here. that They're setting something up that they've always known, that they've always been comfortable with. And they're sincerely just, Jesus, we hear you. We trust you. But Jesus, this, we need some clarification. Is this really as simple as you're making it seem? That anything from the outside entering a man will not defile him, but it's only that which comes from his inward being. Is it really as simple as that? And then in Jesus' response, after calling them dull, he says, yes. Verse 18, he says it's as simple as this. And he provides this physical analogy. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods good. So whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his um, stomach and not his heart. What comes out of the man from his inward being, his internal condition, the Word of God is saying that's that which condemns him and defiles him. This little passage has a lot of unique items regarding the English translation. And, and again here, verses 18 and 19, our English versions here provide a more tamed translation. And I will not get more graphic than our Savior got in the Word, but I will speak the truth to you here. What the Greek talks about here is really Jesus has these two prepositional phrases. Something comes into and then something goes into something else. What Jesus actually says here, oh, you've got to love this. I love it. He says it's not about what goes into the man that defiles him because it doesn't go into his heart. You know when you eat food, it goes into your stomach and then it goes into the toilet. That's what Jesus, the Son of God, said here. You look it up. You look at the reference, the definitions provided in whatever type of Bible translation you have. Mine says the latrine. I don't know if that sounds better than the toilet. But Jesus is just saying, don't you know, here's a simple physical analogy. Yes, it's as simple as this. Yes, I am meaning what I am saying. It's as simple as this. Just as you know, when you eat food, it doesn't go through the organ of the heart. It goes into your stomach and then it goes into the toilet. Everybody can relate to that. We know what it means. I don't need to go any further Food that goes into your stomach doesn't defile you, but it's the fecal matter that goes into the toilet. And here in this, regardless of how young you are, how seasoned you may be with biblical familiarity, you think, well, of course, pastor. That's not earth shattering. Absolutely. Food is beneficial. I enjoy food. I work out because I love eating so much. Anybody relate to that? Don't say you work out just because you love nutrition. That is, none of that stuff tastes good. I just don't believe you. But it's simple. Of course we understand that. Food tastes good. It's beneficial. It provides nourishment. It provides all these benefits for the body. And in no way would I ever be tempted to take that which is in the toilet and serve it up on a platter that I might eat that and consume that as I would a meal as a box of Lucky Charms or Frosted Flakes or Cinnamon Toast Crunch. 
It's that simple. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. Because obviously, yes, it's not the food that goes in, but it's that which goes into the toilet and takes off the paint that defiles. Why is such a big deal about Jesus on this? Why does Jesus talk about the latrine and toilet? Why does he talk about what's really going on here? Because the issue is the heart. For generations upon generations, the religious leadership, they thought they were good. They came to believe we're the apple of God's eye, we're the nation of Israel. We are favored by God unlike any other surrounding nations. We're good people at our core, but he's given us these commandments so we can manage the external, so we can manage our environment around us, so that we can keep up with the rituals, so that we can neglect these people and not associate with those impurities, so that we can eat these proper foods, so that we can not neglect the practices of the law. But the intent from the very beginning, the intent today, and the intent of God's heart for all eternity has nothing to do with environment or the external things around you. It always has to do with the heart. It's not gastrointestinal, it's cardial. It has nothing to do with your stomach, and I'll quit talking about our stomach now in the toilet. It has everything to do with your heart. So it was from the very beginning. God the Father in perfect eternal fellowship with God the Son, enjoying that harmonious union with God the Spirit before there was ever time spoken into existence. Out of the overflowing, the abundance of His love and harmony among the Trinity, one God, three persons, that overflowed out of that relationship, desiring to have relationship with creation. That this creation might bring him glory. That this creation made in his image, one man, one woman, coming together to multiply and fill the earth. That out of that they might choose to follow and trust God. But there in the garden we know what it was. God gave them all that they could um, ever need and said, don't take of that fruit of one forbidden tree. And we know externally it was manifest through this, this sneaky snake as we teach our kiddos. And they took of the fruit. They took of the fruit, not just Eve. Adam was a loser of a spiritual leader and passive. And they took of the fruit. It was manifest physically, externally that way, but it all came out of a lack of trust in their hearts. God said, you've got all you need. We were in perfect fellowship. Just don't take of that one tree. Do you trust me? And from within... In their hearts was that lack of trust. And here we are today. Physical death entered into the human race. Every person born into the human race. Sinful nature. Sin entered through one man, as it says in Romans. We all have this broken nature. God cannot be with us because he is totally other, totally holy. has nothing to do with what's going on outside. We're so defiled and disgusting within us. We have ourselves covered. Jeremiah says it's all about the heart. 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful. It's wicked. 
Who can understand the ways of the hearts of man in our fallen condition? James 1.14 talks about every one of us, no matter whose family we belong to, no matter how much good we've done for our community, no matter how much integrity we uphold in our careers, that we all, we are all tempted. We all have these different things we're lured by and enticed by according to our own lusts and our own desires. It's a matter of our hearts. And out of that broken condition, it just overflows so easily and naturally and defiles us before a holy, almighty God. So Jesus makes this simple analogy to literally get to the heart of the issue. And he continues in verse 20. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, come sexual immorality. That's intimate relationships with someone outside of your marriage that you've covenant before God and before one another. Theft, taking of something that does not belong to you. Murder, that is not the same as killing, but it is taking the life of someone made in the image of God in an unjustified way. Adultery, someone enjoying sexual intimacy while being married and doing that outside of the marriage bed. Coveting, wickedness, deception, sensuality, envy, literally having an an evil eye towards someone and what they have. Slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus said to them, come from within. And it's these things that defile a person. Jesus had to reject their religion altogether because it was all based on an inaccurate diagnosis. They'd prescribed solutions through external methods and procedures. They took the Ten Commandments and added to it a total of 613 rules and regulations, thinking that would achieve greater favor, that would achieve a better standing before God. If they just didn't bump into any Gentile, if they could just close the borders of Israel and keep the country pure and go about all their ceremonial rituals. Jesus said, no, it has everything to do with your heart. They had missed it. God's heart was to present the Ten Commandments. And they realized as a people that in their broken condition, in their sinful conditions, they had no hope of maintaining the holy standard of a righteous God. And out of that recognition, it was intended to then drive them to dependency, placing full faith on the God of Israel, the one true God, that He would supply their needs, that He would provide in relationship for them. Yes, for a time through a sacrificial system. Yes, for a time through these ceremonial rituals and these washings. But for a season, all preparing their hearts and their teachings and their minds for the one Lamb of God who would come and once for all take away the sin of the world. They missed it. Pooh Bear and Piglet continued wandering around on their hunt. They found themselves in a great problem because the further the hunt went on, the more winding the trails went and they followed more sets of tracks they encountered until they heard the voice 
of a familiar, loving friend. Break through the forest, Christopher Robin from a tree. So Christopher came slowly down in his tree. Silly old bear, he said. What were you doing? First, you went around the spinny tree twice by yourself. And then Piglet ran after you. And you went around again together. And then you were just going around a fourth time. Wait a moment, said Winnie the Pooh, holding up his paw. He sat down and thought in the most thoughtful way he could think. Then he fitted his paw into one of the tracks. And then he scratched his nose twice and stood up. Yes, said Winnie the Pooh. I see now, said Winnie the Pooh. I have been foolish and deluded, said he, and I am a bear of no brain at all. Precious old Pooh and Piglet, they missed it. But they had this friend was looking out for him. And this friend broke the confusion, broke the endless cycle of brokenness and disappointment, and spoke truth into their situation by saying, I love you, friend, but the problem is you. That's what Christopher Robin told Pooh Bear and Piglet. I love you, but how dull could you be? I love you, but you're foolish and deluded. I love you, but you are the problem. When we look at anything else in our lives, outside of the wicked condition of our hearts before a holy and righteous God, we are missing the mark. And through this word, God is relentlessly speaking, crying out into our lives, saying, I love you. John 3, 16, I love you so much, I sent my son, I sent myself to live a perfect life and die death as a criminal that you deserved in your place. And I conquered the grave because you, in your heart condition that is broken and sinful and wretched and deserving of eternal condemnation and eternal separation from God, you are the problem. Isaiah 6 talks about that, doesn't it? A sincere recognition of who the Lord of hosts is in Isaiah 6, chapter 5, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean clean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. An understanding of the real problem is what leads to an understanding of the solution, and hopefully by the grace of God, your potential acceptance of that eternal solution. Where do you find yourself today? Have you missed it? Would someone say, yeah, so-and-so, they're, they're a good person. They maintain integrity in their workplace. They love their family. They provide for them. They're at church when they can be. What about your heart from which all 
vileness and sickness and transgression comes from and offends a holy, almighty God. Jesus was getting at what we see take place in the book of Isaiah as well is we are in need of a new heart. We're not in need of a morality washing. We're not in need of some moralistic, therapeutic Christianity. We're in need and called to a following of Jesus in which we are slain. Where our sinful condition is completely ruined that we might be raised to walk in a newness of life. I mean, these songs we sang earlier, man, God put that together so beautifully. We, we did not plan those lyrics out, things like that. Charles Spurgeon said, you can slander human nature. I'm sorry, you can't slander human nature because it's worse than words can paint. As your pastor, the same is true. You can't slander me. You, you can't try to begin to tell me how poor or wretched or inadequate I am because you know what? Let me assure you, I'm far worse than you could ever imagine. But by the grace of God, where evil and vileness comes from within me and my heart, he has taken my dead corpse and he hasn't just put makeup on it, but he has breathed life and transformation into it that I might be declared righteous before him and I might be a child of the King for all eternity. Don't miss it today. If you're a believer, don't miss the daily calling that we should be overwhelmed with the reality that a holy, almighty God doesn't just condemn us and strike us dead, eternally separated from Him, but in His grace, in the wideness of His mercy, He stooped down and emptied Himself and carried out fully God, fully man on your behalf. When's the last time you were gripped by that reality? When's the last time you wept over that reality that God gave himself for you? The gospel's not just for the unbelievers here today. The gospel is for us daily as followers of Jesus and the price we are called to pay as his disciples. But don't miss this either. If you are here today and you consider yourself a good person, you strive to do what's best. You strive to, to give charitably. You try, try to maintain integrity. You love your family. If you've never admitted that the Jesus of this word is God, and if you've never professed your belief and faith on Him as your Lord and Savior, when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to remind you of this verse. And just like Paul said it as well, Filthy rags, dung, waste. Because even in the goodness as potentially viewed by this world, it will never live up to the righteous standard of Almighty God. But in His love, He has invited you to gather here today. In His love, He has provided one song at the end of our service where before you get back in the hustle and bustle of the distracting world around us, you can walk down this aisle and you can, you can meet me, you can meet Pastor Zach and we can talk with you what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus 
that He might wash your iniquities away, that He might clean you whiter than snow so that the condition of your heart right now as a man dead in your trespasses might be revived and resurrected to a newness and an everlasting life. Who here has God in His holiness and everlasting mercy brought here today that you might find a restoration and a transformation of life like nothing this world affords?